Thanks, Jack. Great to see you all again. Um, please do get a handout in front of you. That'll be helpful as we go through. And welcome back to Lancaster. Now, the most important question we can ask in our lives is the one that's down on the top of your sheet. How can I be right with God? Now, whatever other questions you're thinking about in your seminar classes or lecture uh, theatres or writing about for essays or revising for exams or maybe not revising for exams, but you need to be, um, this is the most important question in life. And so I'm so glad that you're here uh, to think about it. How can I, as a person made by God, living in his world, be in the right with him? Now, every one of us will one day stand before the almighty God of the universe. The writer of Hebrews says that we'll, uh, every person is destined to die once and then face judgment. How can we be sure that on that day we will receive a welcome into God's eternal kingdom? How can we know? How can we be sure of that? Do you see that whatever other questions you spend your time thinking about in life, this is the most important question. We need to know the answer to this question. And if we understand the magnitude of that question, then we'll begin to understand the significance of the 16th century Reformation. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to spend our Sunday nights thinking about some of the key Christian uh, doctrines that were clarified at the time of the Reformation 500 years ago. And the Reformers were willing to fight and speak and face death because they knew how important, important it was that men and women and boys and girls are right with their God, their creator, the almighty God of the universe. They knew the significance of the answer to this question and they were willing to die to defend the answer. Now I wonder, uh, just as you hear this word reformation, uh, just shout out what, what comes to mind? What do we know about the reformation? Um, people, events, places, just shout them out. What comes to mind when we hear reformation? Martin Luther. John Calvin, anyone other than Joe? <laughs> Catholicism. Catholicism. Henry VIII. Henry VIII. The 95, theses. 95 Theses. Nice t-shirt by the way, Emma. Sorry, Lydia. The Solas, great. Yeah, Brill, um, if you studied a bit of the Reformation, maybe in school or um, in other places, you'll know that the Reformers were protesting against some core Roman Catholic beliefs and according to the reformers um, some of those beliefs were undermining the gospel and they were actually stopping people from truly knowing God. Now when we lived in London um, a few years ago for, for the entire time we spent in London Big Ben was covered in scaffolding and sheets very sadly. Uh, we had some Swiss friends who came down to visit us and we went into um, to the, around the Palace of Westminster and there was Big Ben but you could only see a tiny little bit of the clock and it was a shame because the beauty had been obscured. Well this is what the reformers started to see in some of the Roman Catholic uh, teaching um, and the doctrines that they held. We could think of it as the, uh, the church putting up scaffolding after scaffolding, sheet after sheet. And gradually the gospel, the gospel that could save people, was being obscured and the way to know God became hazy. But the gospel we covered at the time of the Reformation is the glorious gospel that can bring life. It's like that scaffolding coming down so that the gospel could shine for all to see. This is a gospel that can really save people. This is a, a gospel that can justify rather than condemn. 
It's a gospel that can give us a sure and solid foundation for our Christian lives. The Christian professor Stephen Nichols puts it well when he talks about why we study the Reformation. It's here on the sheet. Let me just read this for you. This is why we're doing the series. He says, we study the Reformation because of what we can learn. We learn of the treasure of the gospel. We learn how easy it can be for the church to lose sight of its value. We learn of the origin of most of the practices of church life that we simply take for granted. We learn what doctrines matter most. We learn how to proclaim those doctrines in the world in which we live. And we learn about real people, gifted and talented, who also possess the flaws and limitations of humanity. Above all, we learn from them that our faith and trust lie not ultimately in their lives and their examples, but in the God-man, Jesus Christ. They all point us beyond themselves to him. So during this series, our aim is to learn more about this treasure of the gospel so that we can appreciate Jesus more, who is right at the centre of this good news. Now, in future weeks, we're going to be uh, looking a lot more at the Bible and thinking about um, what is called the five solas, and I'll talk about those um, later. You'll realise that there's no Bibles on your tables, and I think this is a terrible thing, isn't it, as a pastor, that I'm not going to be speaking much about the Bible, because we're going to be thinking about history tonight, um, thinking about the main events and the main people of the Reformation, uh, giving you a whistle-stop tour, and then in future weeks, we're going to get into the Scriptures and why do the Reformers believe what they believed. So we're going to start where the Reformation began. Come back 500 years with me. We're in the year 1517, we're in Germany, and a man called Martin Luther. Now, he was the man who lit the flame um, that started the whole Reformation. Now, you might have seen this picture. I'm sure he was happy in some moments of his life, but not in this photo that is widely used. But here's Martin Luther, he's German. Um, now, Martin Luther hadn't deliberately set out to turn Europe upside down. Um, at first, he was simply a man who was struggling deeply with his own salvation. Through a series of quite strange events involving a lightning strike, which you can read about in your own time, um, Martin Luther became a monk and he started to teach theology as a professor at Wittenberg, Wittenberg, is that right? Thanks, Jay. Um, University in Germany. And he taught there for a number of years. And yet throughout this time, Luther lacked any real assurance that he was saved. He was an incredibly zealous monk. He prayed more, he fasted more. Um, he did as much as he could to work hard as a monk. And yet he resented God. He thought that God was demanding something from him that Luther just simply couldn't give. He thought that God was demanding perfect righteousness. But as a sinner, he realized that he couldn't get anywhere close to that. Now, the turning point for Luther came when he understood what we'll see next year in Real Food um, as we look at the book of Romans. He understood that righteousness is a gift from God to be received by faith, given purely by God's grace. And when he got this, he said that it was as if the very gates of paradise were opened up for him. He saw for the first time that God is good, that the gospel is good, and he saw the assurance of knowing that he was justified not by works, but by faith. We'll see more about that in future weeks. And it's as Luther's eyes were opened to that wonderful truth of the gospel that he began to see the corruption that surrounded him in the church. The particular corruption that forced Luther to speak out was the sale of indulgences. There's a picture, um, if you can see any. There's somebody there, Johann Tetzel, in that tent at the top, selling indulgences. 
Now, the Roman Catholic Church at the time were selling these pieces of paper um, that they promised could reduce a person's time in purgatory. Now, this time of purgatory, Catholics say, is the time between death um, and heaven, where a sinner needs to purge away their remaining sins. But by purchasing something called an indulgence, the sinner could reduce their time in purgatory. You could also buy one for a friend or a family member um, so that they uh, could reduce their time in purgatory if that person had died. And one of these sellers, the person on the screen, Johann Tetzel, was quite a good salesman uh, by the sounds of it. He'd come up with this little jingle to boost sales. Oh, sorry, there it is. He said, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And that was the thing that he would go around saying as he sold indulgences. Now, just turn to a neighbour for a minute. What, is, what are some of the problems with that idea? Just turn to a neighbour, have a chat for a minute. What do you, what do you think was the problem that Luther saw? Okay, let's come back together. Now, I won't share from that, but I hope you can see some of the problems that Luther, Luther saw with this practice. Um, it claims that a person can buy the grace of God, doesn't it? A sinner, just by handing over a few coins, can pay for their sins, can appease God, and can earn some of his favour so that they don't have to spend as much time under God's judgment. It says that we can pay for grace. As so you can see why Luther was forced to speak out as he began to understand the gospel. Now, at this time, it was normal to begin a debate by publishing a set of uh, theses. And so Luther uh, began this discussion by allegedly hammering his theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg in 1517, 500 years ago, um, on October the 31st. So Halloween, um, we can also celebrate Reformation Day, which is um, a lot more wholesome to be celebrating. Now, his paper was called The Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. Um, it's commonly known as the 95 Theses. Now, the Pope at the time, Pope Leo X, quickly dismissed these as the ramblings of a drunken German. And he said that Luther would think differently when he sobered up. But what the Pope or Luther didn't anticipate was the profound impact that this document would have, not just in Germany, but on the rest of Europe. Luther was speaking out against indulgences particularly, but what he hadn't realised was that his criticism would strike at the very heart of a lot of Roman Catholic teaching at the time. A lot of their practices were built on this idea that the church could give grace to the sinner. So we think about the priest who dispenses grace at the time of confession. Mary could do this. The mass was a time when grace was given and many saints were there to give the people grace. So do you see that Luther was cutting to the heart of this and he began to argue that God alone can give grace to the sinner. The church can't do this. The sale of indulgences can't do this. The priest can't do this. Only God can show a sinner grace through Jesus Christ. We are justified through faith alone. So these, this document was hammered uh, to the church door. Um, they were published, they were distributed. And this was really the first crack in the dam before the flood would follow. Now, there were lots of exciting things we could talk about in Luther's life. We'll talk about a few of them as we go through. Like when he spent a few years in hiding under the name Sir George. But we don't have time for that tonight. Um, what we do need to know is that his ideas spread like wildfire across Europe. The printing press had been invented just a few decades before. There was now greater uh, sort of opportunity for new ideas to spread. And no matter how hard the Catholic Church tried to stop it, 
his forceful writings and his clear ideas began to, took hold, to take hold. Now we'll learn more about Luther as we go through, but we can't leave Germany without making the point that Luther was a real human being with rough edges who made serious mistakes. And there are some aspects of his teaching that we would have real issue with, I think, as we um, come to terms with them. And yet he understood the gospel, and once he understood the gospel, he didn't compromise it. One writer says that he knew what to take seriously, and he knew never to take himself too seriously. He defended the gospel against fierce attacks, and yet he laughed at himself. He talked about his love of Wittenberg beer, and he described any Christian who looks for praise from men as a donkey. He said, you know, reach up to your head and see if you've got donkey ears, if you're somebody who wants praise from men. So he said some colourful things that are quite fun to read. But his last recorded words, um, I think, sum up what he knew about the gospel. These are the last words that are recorded from the lips of Luther. When he approached his death, he said, we are beggars, this is true. So that's Germany. The flame has been lit. Now the next stop in our European tour is Switzerland. Can I hear a cheer for Switzerland? Come on, John. <laughs> now, Ulrich Zwingli is an important Swiss reformer. We're going to learn more about him in a few weeks' time in one of our uh, slots that we're going to have uh, from one of our, our students. Tonight I want to focus on a name that might be more familiar to us, and that's John Calvin. Calvin is one of the better-known figures of the Reformation who had a brilliant mind and a deep concern for the glory of God. He's, he's French, he was French, he was brought up as a Catholic, and he was seven years old when Luther nailed those theses to the door. And so when Calvin was growing up, the Reformation was already spreading in Europe, and so he was able to make a relatively smooth transition um, into believing these things that Luther had been teaching, and he became convinced of Reformed teaching in 1533. But Calvin had to flee from Paris because of his beliefs, and he ended up in Basel, Come on, John. Um, where he published the first edition of um, his famous Institutes of the Christian Religion at the age of 26, which makes me think, what have I been doing with my life? Um, now, when he was travelling in the same year, he came uh, to the city of Geneva. Now, Calvin had always set his sights on a nice, quiet life as a scholar in a university somewhere, writing books and thinking about the Bible. Um, but he was persuaded to stay in Geneva by a very forceful character called William Farrell. Farrell convinced Calvin to stay to further the cause of the Reformation in Switzerland. And Calvin stayed, it seems, um, as though it was through a mixture of conviction that he should be there, but also fear of this man called uh, William Farrell. If you read about it, you'll, you'll see some of that. So he ended up pastoring a church in Geneva, which was anything but nice and quiet like the life that he'd imagined. While he was there, he spent much of his time preaching, he pastored the church in Geneva, and he tried to bring about reform in the city. And apart from a three-year spell where he was kicked out of Geneva, he spent the rest of his life there. It's not the place where he wanted to be at first, but in one of his letters to Farrell, he wrote this. He said, but when I remember that I am not my own, I offer up my heart presented as a sacrifice to the Lord. So Calvin applied himself to ministry in Geneva. He had a real impact there, and yet it's, it's his writings really that have stood the test of time and that had a massive impact in Europe. He kept expanding the Institutes of Christian Religion, which ended up as four volumes. Um, it's a brilliant work to read. He also wrote commentaries on almost every book of the Bible. If you go to Lancaster University Library, you'll find them all. Uh, first floor in the religious studies section. They're all of Calvin's commentaries. I think it's only me who takes them off the shelf, so come and also uh, enjoy, enjoy those with me. Um, 
And it was those writings really that, that spread and helped Reformation teaching to take hold in Europe. So that's the Reformation in Switzerland, Zwingli and Calvin. And many um, cities experienced real change and reform. Zurich, Geneva, Bern and Basel all started to hold fast to biblical truth and Calvin's writings spread and spread. Now the next country on our tour is Scotland. It might surprise you uh, to hear that Scotland was the country that perhaps experienced the most thorough reform of any of the countries in Europe during the Reformation. And the major player in Scotland was this guy, John Knox. Now his early life was a bit of a mystery really. We're not sure when he was born. We're not sure where he attended college. We do know that he was a Catholic priest for a little bit. Um, and sometime around 1543, he became wholeheartedly convinced of Reformation teaching. Knox began to reform the church in Scotland, but all that was put to a halt when Queen Mary came to the throne in 1554. Knox and many others were forced into exile, and he ended up in Geneva, where Calvin was, and he could learn from Calvin and see his ministry. He obviously liked what he saw because he called Geneva the most perfect school of Christ um, that, that, that there ever was on earth. Now, when he returned to Edinburgh five years later, he tried to do for Scotland what Calvin was doing for, for Geneva and Switzerland. And the main, main way that Knox went about reform was to go back to the basics and think, what should church life be all about? And he said there were three important marks of a truly Christian church. See what you think about these things that he said. He said the first was the true preaching of the word of God. The Roman Catholic Church claimed to be the true church of God, but Luther, Calvin and Knox and others said that it wasn't enough simply to claim that. True churches are formed and nurtured by the preaching of the word. So the word has to be at the centre. That's his first thing, the true preaching of the word of God. Second is the administration of the sacraments, um, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And third is church discipline. Knox was keen for churches to be places of order and discipline, which included putting in place elders and deacons. Just turn again to a neighbour. What do you think of those three things? Okay, let's come back together. We can talk more about that later. But that's the kind of church that the reformers, not just John Knox, but all the reformers wanted, where the Bible was in the driving seat, where preaching was primary, where baptism and the Lord's Supper were rightly practised, and where people took holiness seriously because church discipline was being practised as well. Now, Knox is known for being a bit of a fiery character. Um, some of his writings were highly controversial, um, but it was his commit commitment to the gospel and his zeal for preaching that brought about real reform in Scotland. Ian Murray, um, who has written a lot of uh, Christian biographies, says his authority came from the conviction that preaching is God's work, the message is his word, and he was sure the Holy Spirit would honour it. That's Scotland. Uh, the final stop in our Reformation tour is England. Let's start with uh, William Tyndale. Now, Tyndale was a, a scholar who was converted in about 1522, five years after uh, Luther had uh, nailed the document to the door. And Tyndale quickly became frustrated that church leaders of the time really seemed to know very little about the scriptures that they were meant to be teaching to others. 
He was also frustrated that the church insisted on using Latin in the church meetings, which meant that it was basically impenetrable to anybody who came in to listen. People didn't understand what was going on, it was inaccessible, they didn't know what was being taught. Tyndale wanted ordinary believers to have access to the word of God, and he once replied to a priest who criticised him. He said, if God spare my life before very long, I shall cause a ploughboy to know the scriptures better than you do. Great reply. And this is what he set out to achieve. He had a wonderful grasp of the biblical languages, and so he translated the New Testament um, into English because he wanted to get it into the hands of every ploughboy and into the hands of every ordinary Christian. His English New Testament was a, a masterpiece that spread across Europe. He did start work on the Old Testament, but all his papers were lost in a shipwreck as he uh, crossed the sea. Now, like many of the English reformers, he was later burned at the stake for his belief in the gospel. That's William Tyndale. We'll come back to him in future weeks, but we need to move on in England and just spend a bit of time thinking about two other key figures in the Reformation, King Henry VIII and Thomas Cranmer. If you've studied this period of history, and there'll be people who are probably more knowledgeable than me about this, you'll know that politically it was a very turbulent time. Henry VIII is a notorious figure in British history, isn't he? And we'll probably know a poem or two about his six wives. It's a period of history, I think, that really reminds us that our sovereign God uses sinful people and sinful events in his purposes, a theme that we're going to see throughout this term. Through a series of unfortunate events to do with Henry and his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, Henry broke from the church in Rome and he established himself as the head of a new national church, the Church of England. That enabled him to divorce his first wife and marry Anne Boleyn. Now, through these events, a man called Thomas Cranmer was brought into the inner circle of the king, and he later became the Archbishop of Canterbury, the highest sort of position in the Church of England, other than the king. Now, Henry didn't seem to be that interested in reform, in religious reform. Cranmer was. He was soundly converted. He was convinced of the teaching of the Reformation, and he worked hard to bring about real reform within the Church of England. That was slow under Henry VIII, but when Henry died, his son Edward VI took the throne, who'd been born to Henry's third wife, Jane Seymour. Now, Edward VI, even though he was young, was clearly a believer and was much more keen for reform. And so during that time, during Edward VI's reign, Cranmer helped draft the Book of Common Prayer. You might have read that and used that in, um, in churches. Um, also the 39 Articles, which are the sort of founding documents of the um, Church of England. Brilliant works that are clearly reformed in their teaching and, and teaching evangelical truth. He also published 21 uh, things called homilies, which are basically sermons for uh, church leaders to use around the country who were maybe not schooled in, uh, in teaching well. So there were these 21 sermons that they would preach, church leaders would preach, so that people could hear good doctrine. So you see uh, there the theme of the primacy of the word of God, don't you, in the preaching of the word of God. So Cranmer, he laid the foundation for the Protestant church in England. He was instrumental in helping the Reformation to spread. We're indebted to his work. There was almost a very sad ending um, to Cranmer's life, which you might have read about. Like so many other Protestants, when Mary uh, came to the throne after Edward VI, he was sentenced to death. She was staunchly Catholic. She was keen to get rid of any uh, Protestants. Cranmer was one of them, and he was condemned to death by burning. 
Now the sad thing for Cranmer was not that he was martyred. Many Christians at this time would consider that a worthy way to die because they were aligning themselves with their Lord Jesus. The sad thing for Cranmer was that before he died, he was pressured into signing a document where he recanted all of his Reformation evangelical beliefs which he signed. He caved under the threat of death. But in a cruel twist, those who'd sentenced him to death actually said, we're going to kill you anyway, even though he'd recanted his beliefs and his writings. And that decision actually ended up uh, redeeming Cranmer. He repented of the fact that he'd renounced his Reformation beliefs and he resolved to die in the truths that he, he did believe. Now, when he was burned at the stake, he, he, he's said to have kept his right hand up in, sorry, right hand in the flames, the hand that had signed the document where he recanted his beliefs, and he was heard saying, this unworthy right hand. At the same time, he kept his left hand high towards heaven, knowing that his sins had been forgiven by the Lord. So even though he'd stumbled, he died secure in the knowledge of the gospel. Now, I hope this tour very brief tour of the Reformation has given you a glimpse into how important this time was, um, how influential it was in church history and how some of these things have shaped the way that we think and the way that we uh, sort of live together in church now. One German man with his firm conviction of the truth of the gospel lit the flame that set the whole um, of Europe alight. There are lots of people we could talk about, many more people, many more events, which we're going to uh, talk about some of them in the future weeks. But I just want to take a step back and think, what was achieved at the time of the Reformation? I started out by saying that the most important question we can ever ask is, how can I be right with God? How do I know that on that, the judgment day, when I stand before the Lord, that I'll be welcomed into his kingdom forever? How can I be right with God? That's the most significant question we can ask. And at the Reformation, um, the answer to that question was recovered. It should be obvious, I think, that the reformers didn't invent this new thing called the gospel. We know in Romans 1 that the gospel was promised in, in, through the prophets in the Old Testament. It's not a new gospel. It was preached by Jesus. It was preached by the apostles after him. But the reformers began to recover what was lost. They began to tear down that scaffolding and those sheets that had gone up around the gospel and what emerged was a gospel that could save people, a gospel that could put us in the right with God and give us assurance of our salvation. And it's worth saying that this was not just empty theology for the reformers. This was personal. This was powerful. As they understood the gospel, they themselves were brought into a right relationship with God. Let's have a look at these words from Calvin on your sheets. It shows us why he believed the gospel was so important. He wrote, without the gospel, everything is useless and vain. Without the gospel, we are not Christians. Without the gospel, all riches is poverty, all wisdom, folly before God. Strength is weakness and all the justice of man is under the con condemnation of God. But by the knowledge of the gospel, we are made children of God, brothers of Jesus Christ, fellow townsmen with the saints, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, heirs of God with Jesus Christ, by whom the poor are made rich, the weak strong, the fools wise, the sinner justified, the desolate comforted, the doubting sure, and slaves free. It is the power of God for the salvation of all those who believe. That's why the reformers were willing to live and speak and strive and face death for their beliefs, because they were fighting for the gospel that could save sinners. 
Now, over the next five weeks, we're going to uh, focus on five key truths of the Reformation, one at a time. Um, now, in the 16th century, no one laid these things out and said, here's what we're fighting for. But as people look back on the events of the Reformation and the teachings of the Reformation, these are the five things that emerged as five clear things that they were teaching and working to restore in the teaching of the church. Now, they're known as the five solars. The word solar has nothing to do with the sun or solar panels or anything like that. Um, it's the Latin word for alone. So these are five statements that um, end with alone, something alone. So here are the five. Salvation is found in scripture alone. I've given you the Latin in brackets as well. If you wanted that, not sure if you wanted that. But scripture alone, Christ alone, salvation is in Christ alone. It's through faith alone, by grace alone, and it's all to the glory of God alone. We're going to see how those things relate together as we go through. In the final week, we're going to take a step back and we're going to think, is there a need for reformation today? Is there a need for reformation today? So that's where we're heading. Now, just to say, as we go through this series, um, some of our time is going to be spent talking about the differences between uh, Catholic teaching and Protestant teaching. The aim of that is not to slander other people um, or poke fun at different beliefs. Lots of my family, um, I've got an Italian side of the family, um, lots of them are Catholic, um, some people who are very close to me. So I want to understand what they believe more clearly. I'm not out to, to slander. But we'll see in the series that Catholics and Protestants do think very differently about these alones. And therefore, we need to think um, very carefully, don't we, about what those differences are, because ultimately this is about the heart of the gospel and about God himself. So if there has been scaffolding placed up around the gospel, we want to tear it down, don't we, so that we can let the gospel shine in its beauty for all to see. So I hope you're looking forward to the series. Um, it's not going to be as kind of historical or maybe overwhelming as tonight. We'll be in the Bible more um, and we'll be getting into each of these solas. And each one is really vital for our Christian lives, our assurance, our salvation, our lives as Christians um, until Jesus returns. Please pray. Please pray that this will be a life-changing series for us. Um, we're going to pray a prayer now that I'll put on the end of um, your handout. I'm going to give you a moment uh, to read it and then I'm going to pray it. Uh, using slightly sort of more modern language, I think. But just have a, have a read of this prayer. It's prayed every day on Reformation Day in the Lutheran Church. in prayer. Almighty God, who through the preaching of your servants, the blessed reformers, has caused the light of the gospel to shine forth, grant, we beseech you, that knowing its saving power, we may faithfully guard and defend it against all enemies and joyfully proclaim it to the salvation of souls and to the glory of your holy name. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen.